going to have Amanda uh, introduce our speaker. So Amanda, if you would like to do the honors. Absolutely. Yeah, happy to do that. So today we are thrilled to have Dr. George Kennedy as our GES speaker. Dr. Kennedy began his career in entomology as a curious undergrad wandering the halls of Oregon State University and is now a professor in the Department of Entomology and Plant Pathology here at NC State. Dr. Kennedy's research has laid a foundational understanding of plant-pest interactions from the suborganismal to the landscape scales. He has had an immense impact evaluating the effectiveness and sustainability of various integrated pest management practices used to tackle pests and insect vectored plant viruses. Currently, Dr. Kennedy's collaborative research focuses on integrating how plant pest pathogen pop sorry, how pest population structure and resistance change based on pesticide or GM trait use in the field, white fly and thrip impact on virus diversity, and integrating virus and vector resistance to manage thrip-borne orthotospaviruses. From his great contributions to agriculture here and abroad, Dr. Kennedy has been awarded the Entomological Society of America's Award for Excellence in Entomology, the Entomological Foundation Medal of Honor, and a North Carolina State University Borlaug Award, and he was named a William Neal Reynolds Distinguished Professor in Agriculture. Beyond research, Dr. Kennedy has positively impacted the entomology community throughout his career during his appointments as a USDA program manager with various roles in the Entomological Society of America and as the department head for the Department of Entomology from 2009 to 2012 here at NC State. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Kennedy. Looking forward to your talk. Well, thank you. Jump right into this. Uh, but I would preface it by saying that I've come to this uh, interest in this broad topic of technology and its implications for agricultural intensification and those implications for the future of agriculture. Based on a sense of frustration uh, throughout my career with the inability to uh, obtain adoption of a lot of approaches uh, that make good biological, ecological, and even crop protection sense, uh, but they just don't get used. And there, there are many of those. Uh, and so that's the background for this. I'd like to go through uh, at a pretty high level and uh, fairly quickly. So we have a lot of time for discussion and I'm uh, looking forward to a discussion with uh, a lot of folks who are broadly interested in, in many things related to technology and ag. So I'm going to start uh, really focusing at the, the real big picture and then scale down and then back up again. Uh, but agriculture is facing many challenges related to population growth, climate change, biodiversity, water resources, uh, and uh, so on. Now, the, uh, to address these changes is going to involve uh, increases in total productivity, uh, reduction in carbon emissions, conservation of water, uh, pres preservation of biodiversity, uh, and again, many other things as well that uh, are difficult to do. The current uh, 
agricultural production, if you take a global view of it, uh, ranges from smallholder to industrial scale. In the current paradigm, uh, or under the current paradigm, production systems and agroecosystems are really defined by economics, technology, politics, business, and a huge array of societal considerations. Uh, but if we characterize contemporary uh, conventional production systems, uh, it can be summed up largely by a focus on production efficiency in response to uh, market demands, uh, high input costs, price volatility, financing, policy, and access to technologies that enable intense production, high efficiency, and increasing farm size. Uh, it's also characterized by a growing dependence, a rapidly growing dependence on technology of all sorts that impact equipment, impact uh, germplasm, crop protection, uh, and all points along the uh, farm to uh, feedlot table and uh, industrial use endpoints. Uh, the technology that defines uh, production systems is also self-fulfilling in the sense that uh, has been characterized as a technology treadmill, wherein technology adoption provides an advantage to early adopters, but that advantage diminishes as uh, adoptions become more widespread. So early adopters have to constantly increase yields to maintain the same revenue stream. And they can do this by increasing farm size, and by increasing or adapting new technologies as they become available. Uh, and farm size and the adoption of technologies are not unrelated. So technologies define the production system, but they also define the farm management uh, framework. And I'm just going to give two quick examples of this. One is uh, the impact of irrigation on farm size and management intensity. Uh, we have large-scale irrigation capabilities now that were enabled by the uh, uh, technology of uh, efficient electrical pumps uh, that were much more efficient than uh, diesel-powered pumps for moving high volumes of water. And that is accompanied by an, elect uh, an electrical infrastructure that allowed that. Uh, so increasing pump capacity increases the area that an individual uh, irrigation system can serve. And the consequences of that for land use patterns are shown in this graph or these figures on the right. Uh, there's two series of landscapes. The first one you see in the beginning on the left-hand side, a uh, pretty fragmented farmscape. As you move through time with the adoption of uh, irrigation, large-scale irrigation beginning in the 60s, uh, to where we are in 2010, uh, characterized by large production fields, relatively fewer farms, in fact, uh, producing greater on greater areas of land. And you see the same thing in another landscape here. So I'd like to look also at another technology, uh, herbicide-tolerant GM crops uh, used for weed management. These were first uh, commercialized in 1996, and now are grown on some 85 million hectares globally, more than that uh, now. This was 218 figure. Uh, but they provided many advantages, uh, and there's a whole list of them right here. Efficient weed control is just one of them. Uh, they replaced some uh, much more uh, 
environmentally impactful chemicals that required uh, soil application, in many cases, soil uh, compaction, this our soil uh, incorporation. This led to uh, the switch led to reduced soil compaction, enabled uh, the use of cover crops and no-till conservation, uh, reducing overall environmental impacts and and so on. But ultimately, greater efficiencies in farming. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> I would like to just focus in on one system and use cotton production as a case study. And cotton production uh, in this country and most places in the world is, is a large scale operation. It involves high input costs, volatile prices, requires specialized equipment, including nearby infrastructure in the form of cotton gins. Uh, and basically, if you're gonna be a cotton producer, you go big or you go home. Uh, cotton is produced, uh, in association with uh, row crops, uh, mainly soybean <clears throat> or rotational crops, rather, mainly soybean, maize, double crop wheat, and soybean. These two have high input costs and volatile prices, <clears throat> and they can share many of the same equipment and same uh, production inputs. Uh, to deal with the large prices and, and volatility, or high input costs, rather, and volatility of prices, uh, Large farm scales uh, helps. If you can't get high margins per acre, you make up the difference by growing more acres. And glyphosate tolerant GMO crops uh, really make a difference in how much farming uh, farmland you can uh, you can farm in one operation. This is also enabled by uh, major advances in equipments. Uh, Crop protection technologies have helped in this regard as well, as has Precision Ag and a number of other technologies, including information tech. So all of these come into play in cotton. And we talked a little bit about uh, herbicide-tolerant cotton, but insecticide-resistant cotton, uh, GM cotton expressing BT toxins has been also very important. Uh, these target the caterpillar complex known as a bollworm complex. And the same traits or very closely related traits are expressed in, in maize and also in cotton. You can see the impact of those traits on damage in this figure. You can also see in the lower uh, right-hand corner, the adoption uh, curve for this, these technologies. Um, another technology that's important here is uh, seed treatments. And for insect control, it's neonicotinoid seed treatments, which target early season insects in cotton and in the uh, rotation crops. These are often sold in combination with uh, fungicide seed treatments and nematicide treatments. So it's cheap, it's easy to, uh, and well, easy to incorporate uh, into a seed treatment, whether you need it or not. So it becomes widely used. Now, these technologies have had uh, large impacts on these production systems. Herbicide tolerance has reduced the need for crop rotation. It's uh, resulted in excellent weed control with one to two applications uh, with a single herbicide thrown over the top not, or sprayed over the top, not involving soil incorporation. It enabled conservation tillage in large farm sizes. 
BT Mays eliminated losses to stock borers and uh, one of the bullworm complex, Helicoverpozea. Uh, they were so effective that they reduced uh, populations of uh, these two insects on a region scale, region-wide scale, and that reduced insecticide use on other crops, uh, which these pests affect. So there's tremendous benefits that exceed uh, or transcend just the BT crops themselves. BT cotton uh, resulted in a total reduction in insecticides and uh, use in cotton, mainly with those that targeted bollworm. And seed treatments replaced soil applied applications of uh, insecticides targeting early season insect pests and reduced the amounts of insecticides applied to those crops. Uh, now, the emergence of glyphosate resistant weeds is a relatively recent phenomenon, but in cotton, the occurrence of herbicide uh, resistance in weeds affecting cotton increased the number of total herbicide applications from an average of one to two per season to six total applications per season, each of which involves a mixture of two to three active ingredients. So that's a tremendous uh, jump in herbicide application due to uh, or associated with resistance. Now, if we look at the BT traits, uh, bullworm, uh, the bullworm complex was controlled and that re resulted in reduction in insecticide use. Uh, but an interesting phenomenon also took place at the same time, and that is that uh, populations of stink bugs and uh, ligus uh, or myriads, which feed on the fruiting structures as well, uh, increased. And, they were being controlled by sprays that were targeting the bullworm complex. And when those sprays ceased, these populations increased, requiring insecticide applications uh, directed against them. But this was also enhanced by changes in the production system, uh, whereby more cover crops are growing, you get more double crop wheat and soy, and other changes in the landscape uh, that foster these. Uh, ligus and stink bug populations as well. So there's an increase in, in insecticide sprays for them. And you can see this, uh, this line right here that I'm tracing is insecticide use uh, targeting uh, Illicoverpozea, the bullworm complex. And you notice that uh, beginning about 216, this starts to tur uh, turn up and that's in association with the emergence of uh, resistant populations and increasing incidence of bowl damage in cotton. Uh, this other line that curves up is insecticide sprays for ligates. Uh, so as the bollworm resistance develops, we start to see more and more insecticides uh, being applied. Now, another uh, situation that's important that involves resistance is uh, in cotton involves uh, neonicotinoid seed treatments. And these in cotton target thrips. Thrips are an early season pest attacking only the seedlings. But the thrip species involved, uh, Franklinella fusca, has a very, very broad host range that includes other crops that use uh, neonicotinoid seed treatments, especially uh, soybean. 
Now, these uh, seed treatments were introduced about 2003. By 2015, they were used on 90 to 95% of the cotton and soy. Uh, thrips is not a pest of consequence on soy, and you don't need them to control pests. In fact, the uh, insect pests of seedling uh, soy are very limited and uh, rarely require insecticide treatments. But neonicotinoids are also widely used on other crops as illustrated in this graph on the right, or this figure on the right, uh, which shows imidacloprid use in 2011. Uh, but this figure has not changed much since uh, 2011. Now, resistance to neonicotinoids in tobacco thrips uh, began in 2013, it began to cause problems. Uh, it turns out that this uh, emergence of resistance was closely tied to uh, the intensity of use of neonicotinoids in soybean and cotton. And where you see uh, intense production of soy and cotton is shown in the, the red on these uh, maps. That's where you have high levels of uh, resistance to neonicotinoids in the tobacco thrips. Um, the larger the dot, the more the more higher the resistance level. Now, the response to this resistance was uh, approximately an 18 to or a 10 to 18 fold increase in insecticide use, directly targeting uh, thrips. And that depended on the particular strategies of insecticide control that were used. And I have to say that uh, a lot of ins added insecticide use targeting thrips was uh, uh, took place in areas where resistance had not yet become a problem. But the nature of the insect and the fact that you have to deal with it ahead of time uh, fostered the use of uh, added insecticides. Now, what's been the response to resistance? In the case of thrips, to date, it's been uh, added insecticide use. Glyphosate, it's uh, resistance. There have been released uh, genetically engineered uh, varieties of cotton tolerant to 2,4-D and, and uh, dicamba, older insecticides that have other issues with them, not the least of which is the potential for drift onto neighboring crops. And these have resulted in, in a number of problems, especially uh, where drift onto soybean has occurred in, in many areas. And so there have been constraints on the use of these, uh, these traits because of these other problems. Now, if we look at uh, cryotoxin resistance, which has emerged in bollworm, one approach to dealing with that, the major approach has been uh, incorporation of another BT toxin that's unrelated to the cryotoxins affecting bollworm. Uh, the VIP toxin uh, is also expressed in maize and works extremely well, but uh, local populations having low levels of resistance to the VIP toxin have been detected. And so that doesn't bode well. Uh, moving forward. Uh, and from what we hear from uh, industry, no replacement traits are anticip anticipated within the next 10 to 15 years. So there's a potential additional issue looming large. In the case of thrips, uh, a new uh, BT toxin is, will be commercialized uh, in 2023 that's active and is very effective against uh, Tobacco thrips. It's also effective against ligus populations, 
but it, it suppresses those populations, doesn't provide the level of control needed, and is expected to reduce the number of sprays in the Mid-South uh, cotton production areas from about six today to maybe four once this technology is adopted. So I presented this uh, story about cotton because I think it's a cautionary tale. It shows that powerful crop protection technologies can profoundly change uh, production systems and crop protection technologies. They provide great benefits. They increase yields, control pests, simplify management and reduced environmental impacts, as well as uh, uh, reduction in uh, use of broad spectrum pesticides that have had uh, high mammalian toxicity and other environmental uh, effects. Now, in cotton, pesticide use, if we group insecticides and herbicides, uh, is as high or higher than it ever was prior to the introduction of BT crops uh, and herbicide tolerant crops. The problems we see uh, are not inherent to GMO crops and not inherent to seed treatments or even pesticide technologies. They result from the scale and the manner of deployment of those technologies. The issues of resistance were not unexpected. Resistant management strategies were developed. Uh, and Fred was a big part of developing a lot of those strategies. They were mandated as a condition of uh, registration of those technologies, but their effectiveness has been undermined by poor compliance uh, by growers and by uh, the manner of deployment of different, different toxins uh, over time by industry. I think there's little doubt that strategic implementation at the production system level uh, based on risk benefit and ecological principles could have avoided these outcomes. But it uh, wasn't that wasn't talked about, debated, and uh, even pushed for very hard. It just didn't happen. Uh, now I'd like to shift back with that as some background and look at, again, at the global agriculture picture. Uh, in strategic frameworks for, I need to fix my computer just a second. Apologize about that. Uh, the strategic frameworks that have been developed for how to address uh, changing the agricultural production systems to accommodate these challenges uh, fall into two camps, really, or two alternatives. Increasing production in intensity, uh, referred to as land sparing, which is the industrial model of agriculture. And the strategy is to reduce the total land area farmed and preserve as much natural habitat as you, you can. Uh, this increases yields per hectare, requires increased yields per hectare, increased inputs, greater dependence on technology and operational efficiency, requires an advanced infrastructure with the goal of concentrating the agricultural footprint, uh, environmental footprint of agriculture rather. The other strategy is called land sharing and it's reducing production intensity, uh, wherein you increase the land area farm, but reduce inputs and environmental impacts at the local scale. 
this uh, involves lower yields, increased labor dependence, uh, but diffuses the environmental input of agriculture. Now, if we look at U.S. agriculture, it's consistent with the land sparing model. It's high yield, high input, high tech, and high, highly efficient. Uh, between 1920 or, and uh, 2017, the total uh, land area in the U.S. devoted to agriculture declined from 28% to 17%. Accompanying this was a concentration of production, specialized production in uh, more localized or region-wide areas. Uh, and this has occurred at an increasing rate and between 2002, 2012, there's a 15% increase in, in uh, concentration of agriculture. Total yields increased dramatically. But with this concentration in different areas, there was a dramatic decline in the land area devoted to agriculture in, in the eastern U.S. And this was accompanied by a dramatic increase in forest uh, and if you think about what North Carolina looked like in the uh, even in the 40s and 50s, it was all much of the mountains and so on. And the whole state was in farms as opposed to what it is now, which is forest, but also a great increase in urbanization. Uh, so this set of graphs illustrates uh, land sharing and land sparing. Uh, Strategies And so it compares uh, cereal grain uh, improvements over time. And so you look at, uh, in this case, hectares devoted uh, to uh, of land over time. And you, you see uh, really total land area under uh, cereal production globally hasn't changed, but the yield uh, has increased very, very dramatically. Um, and you can see uh, the green shows the amount of land that was, uh, if we had achieved these yield increases uh, through increasing acreage uh, with that, to, get, to obtain those yield increases, we would have used this much more land. Uh, so now, this right-hand graph compares uh, Asian cereal yields right here with the amount of land used to obtain those yields. And you see very little net change. This is a land uh, sparing strategy. And these set of graphs looks at yield increases in Africa and you can see yield growth here in the black and land use to obtain that, that growth. Uh, and so this is the land uh, sharing option as it played out in Africa. So again, US agriculture is consistent with land sparing. It was never an explicit goal of farm policy or of farmers for that matter. It was driven by uh, some changes in land use, urban growth, for example, concentrating markets, moving labor into the uh, cities, increasing labor costs, uh, 
on the farm, but also increasing uh, associated over time was increasing input costs, which resulted in the need to improve efficiency. Accompanying this is improved transportation, globalization, federal policies, and technology. All of these played a big role in uh, agriculture in the U.S. as we see it today. And so that's the background that I want to present. And I would like to now hopefully open up uh, a discussion. And I've just put here uh, some of the questions that come to my mind, and one of not the least of which is, can we even redesign agri-ecosystems uh, in a systematic, intentional way, and then implement those uh, redesigned systems to meet conflicting demands? And conflicting demands are production increases versus uh, preserving biodiversity, preserving uh, inconsistent with water uh, uh, conservation and management because we face freshwater availability crises as well, and many others. Because it's one thing to design, it's another thing to implement. And we have to keep in mind that we have different models of production in, say, Africa and many areas in the developing world where we, we don't necessarily at this point have uh, the kind of conventional agriculture, industrial agriculture that we do now uh, in much of the developed world. And those developing countries lack the infrastructure at the moment uh, for these uh, conventional or conventional ag, large-scale industrial ag systems. So with uh, kind of what I've described with respect to the technology treadmill is, is, is technology gonna really drive this whole thing? And can these changes be scale neutral? So I'd like to just open it up. I'll be glad to answer any questions or I'd just like to hear a discussion. Um, thank you very much, George. That was really informative. We have a question from Eli. Eli, if you'd like to unmute yourself. Uh, yes, um, so I have uh, sort of two questions and maybe a comment. Um, so I think like a lot of people who are involved in crop development, I, I have a lot of interest in the land sparing uh, argument, but I think you, you just barely touched on the big sticking point, um, which is uh, the land sparing is a side effect um, when we don't have a policy for it. And we also don't seem to know um, exactly what happens to the land. Um, so I'm wondering if you or, or anyone has work that has tracked the, the fate of uh, unused farmland in a rigorous way. Um, and then the, the comment uh, sort of on the other side about land sharing, which always sounds really appealing um, is, uh, I spent some time in Mongolia, which has pastoralist agriculture, which is sort of a a typical example of land sharing often thrown out, especially recently. Um, the situation there is that the shared land in most places is completely given over to agriculture. Um, so like when eco-tourists come to Mongolia, they take them out and they look at the goats and the horses and the cows that belong to the pastoralists, not uh, 
the wildlife that was once there. People have almost forgotten what the landscape was. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I sort of want to add that dimension um, to any discussion of land sharing, that it also it has this tenuous aspect um, that we, we can't really claim that the shared land is a, a clear win for the ecosystem. Yeah, that's a, that's a dilemma. Uh, it's one that I've, well, I've approached this whole thing from a really a perspective of crop protection and you, you get the, uh, there's so many crop protection measures that can be used on, they're not all scale neutral, but you have uh, push-pull technologies, you have uh, managing natural habitat to foster biological controls and so on. And the, the reality is, most cases you either don't have control over that land to, to make it happen, or the costs of efficiency of uh, the efficiency of farm management in our system become an issue. Uh, it's just doesn't fit within the management framework of a farm or the land is too valuable. Uh, and we have other technologies that we can bring to bear to control these things. Um, the land, the abandoned, you know, abandonment of land for agriculture, of course, in our country, has largely resulted in uh, reforestation of that land or development of that land uh, for uh, urban, suburban growth and, and so on. Uh, in many other areas, it's either uh, been abandoned, that is allowed to grow up to whatever it naturally would be, or managed in a in some quasi-agricultural setting like uh, pastures and, and so on. So I think that was my point when I, uh, I point to policy as a way of incentivizing uses of land. And in the US, uh, the Conservation Reserve Program is one effort that's been made. I mean, they take land out of, uh, agriculture and put it into conservation systems. But a lot of those have been planted to uh, different kinds of, of grass crops or something that you can use as industrial stock uh, or just uh, set there, but you're paying growers to, to have that land set aside. Uh, so there's some concern about, uh, or discussion I should say, about how this is going to go forward. Uh, so I think, I think really my, point uh, my, my question about like the whether there's numerical research on that, I think touches on that. If it's if you turn the farm into housing developments, that's worse for the environment. If you turn it into forests, that's better for the environment. So you know there's a big difference, um, and it, it does seem like a real lack of numbers. So the whole biodiversity issue is a big factor. Uh, and incentivizing that, the kind of land use that will preserve biodiversity and, and what form of biodiversity, what metrics. Because a lot of the forests that come back that have come back in 
we'll just look at North Carolina. Uh, it's taken over by loblolly pine in a lot of areas that were once uh, longleaf pine and wiregrass savanna are now loblolly pine, uh, which is not a very good habitat for biodiversity. Uh, I think Joseph has a the next question. Um, so very good um, presentation there and um, very revealing. There was a lot to learn from it. So just wanted to mention that. And then uh, two quick questions. So you rightly made the point about how when it comes to um, the use of pesticides generally across both um, herbicides and um, and insecticides, there's been a general increase with the introduction of um, GMOs. I just wanted to get a sense, when you disaggregate that into pesticides separately from herbicides, uh, have there similarly been an increase? Because then usually BT in particular is championed as um, um, you know, a technology that has been aimed at reducing the use of chemicals on the farms. And also just to get a sense if you disaggregate it, what does the picture look like? And then secondly, getting to the end, you touched on the point about places like Africa not exactly having the infrastructure that would allow for this kind of agricultural intensification. So um, we, we also are aware that there's all this conversation ongoing in terms of trying to push some of these methods of agricultural intensification in developing places like Africa and Southeast Asia. What your advice should be the approach? Um, are there any alternative suggestions or any tweaking that can be done to the very intensified model I was, as was seen in America, if any such efforts are possibly made to introduce some of these technologies in Africa, or there should be a complete resistance from, you know, remodeling these kind of steps in Africa and elsewhere. Thank you. Yeah, so that's a problem that I, I mean, I've thought quite a bit about that and I don't have, I wish I had some answers, but I really don't. I think, you know, to start, the these technologies in the, in and of themselves aren't bad. It's the scale at which they become used that, that can create problems. And that's what we saw in, you know, with the BT crops where they start to fail. Uh, but they were good. They're good when they're working. They have by almost any measure, the benefits outweigh, outweigh any disadvantages and the threat that they're gonna fail is not a reason not to use them, but it should be an incentive to use them wisely. Uh, and in this case, the, the issue is you build a system around that kind of technology and you start removing that technology and you're not able to maintain that system in big perturbations can happen uh, because without her, the herbicide tolerance, uh, you can't maintain that high level of uh, that intensity, of that scale of production in, within single operations. But uh, the, I'm not sure how to answer your question directly. And in fact, I can't, but I, I think the externalities that, are at play are very important. I mean, in, 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 in 
parts of Africa, uh, and I'm thinking of Nairobi as a place I spend a lot of time, but the, there's a lot of population movement into Nairobi and, the, and cities. And so that's, uh, that changes the availability of labor in, in the widely for uh, various things. The infrastructure is centered around there, there as well. Um, the efforts to develop agriculture are focusing on what cash crops can we develop. And cash crops are not cash crops so much for uh, local use, but ideally the goal would be to, to be able to ship them out to Europe on, a, on where you can have a, a, a large scale income generating farm operations. Uh, and that's that leads you very quickly to the uh, industrial model of crop production. Uh, so I know th these debates, and I've read a lot about these debates that are going on constantly. Uh, I, and it's, what I take away from most of them is if, if going to be progress made, it's going to have to involve policies and economic incentives to, to make it happen. Otherwise, it's going to go, uh, it's going to be totally uh, efficiency driven to, to feed global markets by wh whatever's being produced. And, and it will follow that same model. I'm hoping to get some comments, some policy related comments from people that, that have spent more time thinking about how these kind of problems can be tackled. Uh, There's a little bit of a policy discussion going on in the chat. John, would you like to unmute yourself and um, bring up the topic there? Thank you. Um, my point in, in the in the comment is that um, the um, the profit the profit motive seems to be our our main focus in our the U.S. land sparing um, agriculture. Um, Precision ag technology keeps advancing, just like the rest of technology in society. And so producers have to upgrade. Um, the control of their data is, um, the, the, their data is being used for the profits of the company and not being shared with um, producers, at, at least in, in some cases. Seed technologies and the GMO technologies are um, being changed quickly. Uh, you mentioned um, uh, trait stacking and producers have very little choice in that. There are, uh, we heard last year, I think it was a, a, a how much consolidation there is in the seed industry. Um, if uh, another comment I made or, or thought of is that the while, while we do have government programs for conservation, 
They are largely voluntary. The only policy seems to be hands off and, um, and maximize profit. Uh, one more comment along those lines is, is how do we measure efficiency? We measure yield on an acre basis. And that makes a lot of sense, especially years ago. But um, what else is, should we value and put in that denominator? Well, there's two different value systems too, right? There's a broader societal value, which at many levels is, is economic return and economic development. But also uh, there's environmental ethics and, and so on. And, you know, they're playing an, in more, an increasing role. If you look at the chicken industry and what Cal in hog production, California's requirements are forcing changes in animal rearing uh, in, chi in chicken and hog, both at, at the national level. If you look at Europe, uh, the green movement is much more influential than it is here. And they that's fostered a lot of changes in farm structures. There's still, uh, industrial scale type production systems uh, not and not uh, in industrial in the sense of highly efficient operations and there's a uh, large dependence on technology but they uh, they don't use as many pesticides they they use a lot more um, conservation-focused uh, methodologies and so on. Uh, Europe is, uh, their requirements for produce coming into Europe, for example, uh, get right down to uh, what types of insecticides are allowed. And that influences what kinds of pesticides are being developed uh, in, by industry. And it influences what pesticides are being used here. So, uh, I mean, the things like that can have a, a, a significant influence. But I, you know, when I put this in the context of the changes that are needed to agriculture to meet the uh, population growth demands and uh, environmental demands with respect to not just climate change, but uh, well, climate change in the sense of emissions of uh, carbon methane emissions and so on. Those are gonna be fundamental changes in the production systems to, to address that. And both here, even industrial scale systems like we have, but also production systems in developing countries as they need to uh, and will be stepping up overall agricultural production. If you think about water, uh, in needs for agricultural production in parts of Africa, uh, they're going to have, you know, you, there's parts of Central Africa, uh, there's plenty of rainfall, plenty of water, uh, but you start tapping into that water in a big way, you, there's a lot of land clearing and, and uh, that goes on and the changes are 
monumental if you think about that. And and I guess the question is that nobody has answered yet. <laughs> I mean, nobody in general is is what kind of strategy can can do that. Uh, and how can it be implemented in a systematic way? That's, uh, I guess that's the point. Okay, um, let's go to Fred next and then we'll follow up with Ashton. Yeah, so George, there's been a lot of really interesting discussion here. I, I just wanna bring a, a couple of points. One is, you know, we talk about the land sparing that has happened or could have happened, but yet we see this global decline in biodiversity. And, you know, mm -hmm. again, so it's it's sort of like it's, as you said, the land sparing is happening not because we're trying to, you know, help biodiversity, but just as a side effect, we're getting this land sparing thing because of other things. But also to go back to your story um, of researchers or experts, as they're sometimes called, deciding in the early 1990s that overuse of BT or the wrong kind of use of BT or the wrong type of use of glyphosate would lead to resistance and then almost inaction. I mean, some action, but again, it's like the other things where it's sort of like a token uh, expression of interest. Um, you know, it follows the same model, it seems to me, as global climate change where as long as there's a tiny amount of uncertainty, things will just progress. And so the question, and I think this is some of what you want to get at is, okay, so how do we actually do something that will lead to change, that will lead to things being better? And it's not through doing the same thing again and again, where the experts get out there and talk and explain what's likely to happen and it's totally ignored. Yeah. So I think that that's sort of, a, in some ways, your story of what happened. and. I don't, again, I don't have an answer to that, but I, I mean, we do have policy people here and it would be really useful to talk about, is there a different way of going about this? Well, you summarized my point very succinctly. Because um, this is a global debate, it's going on. There's a lot of, and, and there's a lot of things thrown on the table as to ways we can address specific problems. I mean, there's lots of models out there, how you can change fertilizer production systems to reduce uh, carbon emissions. And, and uh, there's how you can sequester more carbon in agricultural uh, by managing the land differently. Um, and there's other things about water use and uh, breeding efforts to increase drought tolerance and nitrogen use efficiency and all of these. But when you start looking at how this shakes out on a global scale and who can afford these technologies and who and is there an infrastructure that lets you deal with it, uh, it's all over the place. And and I guess another point with respect to land sparing is um, where the land is spared and where, where its intense production is intensified. And we're we're moving commodities 
and agricultural goods globally now. So uh, you can increase intense production areas on a, a vast scale in one location and preserve and not, not put into production land on a, on a whole different continent. And I don't know how the benefits of that are, e are even accessible. Um, Ashton, would you like to, I think you had a policy related question as well. Yeah, sorry, I didn't wanna, I just didn't wanna cut anybody uh, off. Um, so I, yeah, I think these, I don't know how I can top Fred either. So that was, um, you know, but I think um, you're, these are these are like the questions to be asking. And I think the way you're framing them is is really kind of on the right on the right track and thinking about this over a longer historical period of time. And I actually want to go back to your initial example of irrigation. Um, and you mentioned electrification, but I think it's worth thinking about that in the context of, you know, thinking about whether or not technology is a driver. Um, I just want to flag that I think you, it's important to think about technology and policy together as drivers, because, you know, electrification and the introdu introduction of pumped water for irrigation was not a policy neutral decision that involved enormous investment through the rural electrification administration which would occasionally like physically go to people's homes and try to convince them to use electricity and that was you know a, that was a policy decision to electrify the countryside basically and so and it's also worth noting if you're thinking about this globally that that level of investment that you saw with the REA in the 1930s was substantially more than comparable rural electrification investments that are happening today. A lot of those projects are more like startup, VC funded. They have like very short timelines where the REA was like in schools. They were like teaching you know, young kids about the value of electricity and they had this multi-generational kind of approach. And so I, you know, I just wanna highlight that just as more of a comment. With um, a similar technology, when you're thinking about what change and what are the sort of drivers of these things, we could just as easily, you know, staying in the New Deal, we could just talk about transportation. The fact that there were exemptions for trucking that made it cheaper to ship um, on, what is it, raw agricultural commodities through um, trucks rather than on trains, like that's where we get um, the sort of modern uh, transportation infrastructure of um, interstate trucking, as opposed to kind of a the rail system that had been used for generations before. Um, and so I think, anyway, this is a long comment, I'm sorry. But uh, I think like your question about scale neutral, as somebody who comes at things from the historical perspective, I would say, uh, I think you have to assume that whatever you're going to do is not going to be scale neutral. And then you have to adjust your incentives and create incentives to adjust for that rather than sort of mm -hmm. striving for something that appears scale neutral. Because I think so often that's the intention, right? The intention with rural electrification was to bring up everybody, you know, rising tide lifts all boats, bring up everybody in the rural areas. And it ended up um, creating lots more kind of inequality in those areas as well. 
Um, because some people got electricity and were like, actually, let's get out of here. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think thinking about scale neutrality from this perspective of it's not something to aspire to, it's something to adjust for, might be a great way to move forward. Anyway, those are just some minor thoughts. Um, I thought those were a great presentation, so thank you. I think that, I mean, I appreciate your comment about electricity because it, it, it does speak to the multiplicity of goals when something is done, right? And un, unintended consequence, nobody could have envisaged what that led to, for sure. Uh, and everything that, all of the things that it did lead to probably have good and bad bad aspects to them that you can't you you can't anticipate i guess that's the law of unanticipated consequences but um i'll leave it at that i appreciate that comment okay i think we have a time for one more quick question um but before I, i'm gonna let dylan ask a question um but before i do i just want everyone um to check out the chat if you haven't been paying attention to it. There are a lot more questions and ideas and comments that we're not gonna be able to address today during our time. Um, so before you log off, make sure you read through that because there's a lot of really good stuff there. Um, but I think our final question for today will be Dylan. So if you'd like to unmute yourself. Hi, all right, uh, everyone hear me? Okay, uh, thank you for you know, this really interesting talk. Uh, I just wanted to get in real quick at the end. Uh, I was thinking about, you know, what you talked about, the technology treadmill and the way that we've seen that some of these beneficial technologies can, you know, over, uh, over time, you know, they just generate more and more expense and, you know, use of inputs. Um, so I was kind of wondering, you know, this uh, similar to what Dalton was just uh, saying in the chat, uh, and and Nora that, uh, you know, maybe there's opportunities for using you know diversity and biological controls to you know get off the off the treadmill. So I was wondering if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, uh, that's one of the frustrations that I've had that led me to kind of take a deep dive into this over the years. And that is, that you think about biological controls or even things as simple as crop rotations or uh, intercropping and uh, on a big scale. Or some You can show that works in some systems, but it, it doesn't get adopted because the there are cheaper, more effective, easier to implement approaches and technologies that that rule the day. Um, and as you, the the more the farm operation, for example, becomes the bigger it gets, and the more uh, management intensive it becomes management time and allocation of resources within the enterprise become really important drivers of what you can and can't do or are willing or not willing to do. 
And, and that's been a, a huge impediment of, to adoption of a lot of practices that are will work. It won't work everywhere, but they'll work in particular systems for particular things. I wonder if there would be any on like a, you know, government kind of level, if there would be any value to incentivizing less consolidation or breaking up, you know, farms, uh, you know, to allow smaller purviews of, of management. If that might improve, uh, I don't know, use of certain higher management, uh, intensive technologies or techniques. I don't know if that's something that's remotely possible. Yeah, I would guess you're dealing with individual property rights and so on. That'd be a pretty tough sell. <laughs> and, I mean, but okay. you, you, you can argue that these big large scale operations are not inherently bad from a lot of perspectives. Um, but they have, there's certainly some serious deficiencies in, uh, in, and not the least of which is those systems can become pretty fragile. Doesn't take some big perturbation to, to cause a great, uh, crisis situation. Yeah, that, that resiliency issue seems to be a big one with these really technology-reliant uh, systems. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Sorry. I need to cut, I need to cut the discussion off now. We're, we're actually over time and um, I want to be respectful of everyone's time and attention. So um, if you could all help me thank George for a really great um, presentation and a really, really good um, discussion. Again, check out the chat because we did not get to everything. And I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, George, and tell people if you have questions you didn't get answered, please reach out to George directly. Um, yeah, sure. I'm sure you wouldn't mind um, continuing the discussion if you need. No, I, uh, I definitely would like to do that. I really enjoyed this. I was looking forward to it and I enjoyed it. So. Wonderful. Feedback. Well, thank you so much. And we will see everyone here next week. Um, I hope you have a good week and take care.